So wonderful to have them with us here. Beautiful music. I got to hear them at first and third, so just imagine how blessed I am now. That was just wonderful music. Thank you so much to the director who brought the group from Collegedale uh, to be with us here today. A beautiful job. They stayed at first, so they don't have to do this twice. They, they're allowed to go. That's good. The only thing that makes me sad is I didn't get to tell them all thanks again, so we'll figure out how to do that another time. But what a, what a beautiful job they did. I hate to interrupt the beauty of that moment with the cello and the piano playing so beautifully. So maybe the best way to follow that is with a prayer. So let's pray. Father in heaven, our hearts have been stirred and... And the beautiful music has inspired us and I think has made us susceptible to your Holy Spirit implanting your word in our hearts. So Lord, we are open to hear. Speak to us today in Jesus' name, amen. We begin today in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So much for the beautiful romantic bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? That didn't quite last a chapter. We read this passage last week and we talked about how that, that experience in the garden changed everything. But it wasn't because there was something magically evil in the fruit and they were all good until they literally bit into it. No, the, what really happened there, the real learning of the knowledge of evil was the day Adam and Eve decided to disobey what God had commanded. That's what broke the relationship. That's what caused Adam and Eve to run and hide when they heard the sound of God in the garden because you know this, you've broken faith in a relationship and when that person comes around, what do you want to do? Run and hide. And that's what they wanted, to run and hide. It broke that relationship with God but it didn't just break that. It also created division between Adam and Eve. And that division showed up immediately. Did you eat the fruit? It was her fault. And we were divided. But there's an irony to the division here. You see, after we had become separated from God, it actually was unsafe for us to be united after that. I mean, look what happens here. Genesis 6, verse 5. 
The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. There was a unity in this time. It was a unity in disobedience to God and a unity in determination for evil. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There was one man who was not united at that point, and it was Noah. He still found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But unity had come, in a sense, to the rest of the world. It was united in sin to its destruction. It seems that division is important to keep us from destroying ourselves. But even after the flood, we find the story of the Tower of Babel, where the generations, a few generations down from Noah, once again tried to unite themselves, not in faithfulness to God, but united as a fallen people. And their desire then was to make a name for themselves and build a tower to stand in defiance to God who had flooded the earth but God knew that this sort of unity could not stand because, you see, God, even though we had disengaged from him, had not, as we learned last week, ceased being engaged with us, and neither did he cease longing to bring us back into relationship, but we were beginning to become united to destruction, so we find Genesis 11, verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. You see, what happened was God came down and, and confused the languages. He, he reinforced the division. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The point I want you to understand as we start today is this. Sin divides us. Last Sabbath, we talked about how that sin in the garden resulted in a loss of connection with God. We, we were disengaged with God, separated from God. Today, we're going to talk about how sin has divided us from each other. It's going to be hard to engage with one another if we are separated and divided from each other. Which brings us to our theme for this year, the idea of engage. And we have our graphics now, and in fact, we even have the, the whole lead-in graphic. So here we go for the first time. There it is, yeah. Good stuff, huh? Yeah. I like that, that, that whole engineering feel to it. That makes me feel very good. Engage. Our theme for this year, that we would engage with our families, that we would engage within our church community, and that we would engage in God's purpose outside of these walls and God's people outside of these walls. 
God has never ceased being engaged with us. And as we talked about last week and learned last week, that God ended the separation between us and him when Jesus came and became the man through whom God could engage with all humans. But what about the divisions between us and each other? Jesus has come and healed the separation with the Father. But what about our divisions with each other? Well, there's a couple points here we need to recognize. The first is these divisions between us, these are the result of sin. And the second is this. God has allowed these divisions And even, as in the case of Babel, and I believe some other examples as well, God has even reinforced our divisions from each other. Why? Well, the problem is, if we as humans unite ourselves around sin, it is a unity that leads to destruction. And therefore, for our own good, God allowed division and, in fact, at different times in history, reinforced it so that we as humans would never completely unite to our total destruction. Because before God could truly reunite us, safely reunite us, he had to first truly reconnect us with himself. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So the first point here, isn't it fascinating how the first step towards God bringing us back together in unity involved another division? God said to Abraham, go away from all your people, and I will start to reunite the whole world. Seems counterintuitive. Seems strange, but there was a reason. He goes on, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And notice this last part, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Go away by yourself so that I can begin to bless the whole world. All the peoples will be blessed through you. Well, the story goes on through the the sons of Abraham and on down until the nation of Israel comes to be. It starts with the story of God telling Abraham, well, you need to be separate for this to work. And the story goes on, and it seems God puts that same restriction on Israel. Now, I'm going to read you from four different places from the history of Israel these interesting words, and you might not have thought of them this way before, but listen to these words. We're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We go on to Israel, yet, yet Israel is told to remain apart. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and, do not, and show them no mercy." 
Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Now, we read that and we say, wow, that seems a little harsh. Do you know why God said, I need you to be a part? It's in the next verse. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. You must stay apart because the time for unity has not yet come. Was it a true and fair warning? Joshua 23, the people have now entered the land. Joshua 23, verse 9, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. You must not join with them, for it will be a unity to your destruction. Did it happen? 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Is that not like one of the saddest epilogues to a story of a great leader of Israel? Supposedly, the wisest man who ever lived, and this is what the end of his story is? The time for unity had not yet come. Eventually, it would be said of of the northern tribes, shortly after this Solomon incident, the kingdoms would divide into the northern tribes and into Judah. And eventually the northern tribes would become so much like the nations around them that the Lord would say, I can't even tell you apart from them anymore. And they would disappear, defeated by the Assyrians and lost. And all that would be left was Judah, but even Judah would constantly run after idols and constantly run to trouble until finally the Babylonians would come and take them away and they would go together as a people to the land of Babylon and finally in Babylon learn the lesson. The Lord is doing a work through us and we must preserve what he is doing And they would come back to the land and finally put away their idols. But yet even then, Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, 
have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. You know, I think the day of, of uh, theatrical leader demonstration is a little bit lost on us. That might be pretty powerful. Maybe, maybe someday I'll come up here and tear my cloak and rip hair out of my head. Maybe, maybe that would impress some people. What do you think? Yeah, sometimes I think we're, we're missing out some of the acting out of the ancient faith and keeping it a little too much in our minds. But uh, so this is what Ezra did, and it says, and then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement and my, with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to heaven. Talk about a mentality of division. But as offensive as this all might sound to our minds, realize it wasn't for no reason that God told them to remain separate. You see, God was engaging all the peoples of the world. But in order to do it, certain ones had to remain separate for certain seasons. It started with Abraham. He had to leave. It built with Israel, and they needed to remain separate. Why? Because God was working a plan that was to bless all the people in the earth. But in order for there to be a remnant of his people left, when the critical moment came, God had to enforce drastic measures upon them. Because unity in sin leads to destruction. And so the people were to have remained divided. So divided, in fact, that the people of God began to suspect that this was a division that was to last forever. But then, in the fullness of time, God's plan reached its critical moment, and in a stable down in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. Now everything would be different. For in Jesus, humans were once again inseparably connected to the Father, and through Jesus, brought back into the family of God. But it wasn't just the separation from the Father that Jesus came to cure. He was also here to make good on the promise to Abraham that through him would come one who would be a blessing to all peoples everywhere that he might become the center around which all nations might be reunited in the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. 
Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth. Can I see some hands of the Gentiles here today? Not a whole lot of us of Jewish descent, are we? That's what this is saying. Therefore, most of you in attendance at Forest Lake today, formerly called Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Your ancestors had it tough. You know that, right? God was re-engaging, but it took time. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus reconnects even Gentiles to the Father. But that is not the only crisis left over from the sin in the garden that Jesus came to resolve. There was also the problem of the divisions between us as humans. Verse 14, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. What commands and regulations? You must be separate from them in Christ, set aside. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. One body reconciled to the Father and to each other in Jesus. So what are the implications? Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Now, here's the thing. It isn't easy because we don't, when we come to Jesus, suddenly, magically become the same and therefore it becomes easy for us to get along. Yes, we are being built together into a temple for the Lord. But here's the thing. We're not a brick construction. Here's what's nice about bricks. They're all the same size. They all look the same. Grab any brick you want, put it in the next spot. No, we are uncut stones. And we are all different shapes. And it takes a completely different kind of mason to build a temple out of rough stone than it does to build one out of bricks. 
because the stones don't go into the wall easily. You have to look at what you have, and you have to think about what you're building, and you have to find just the right stone and put it in just the right place, and one of the ones that looks useless might turn out to be key to the whole wall. You don't know until the master builder has built the house. Somehow I think we end up with this expectation that after we come to Jesus, there's going to be an inherent sameness about us. And is not this expectation that we would be the same an endless source of strife between us? Here is how I experience Jesus best. Therefore, this is how you need to experience Jesus best. I'm not picking on any individual group in this church. We all do it to each other. But I want you to understand and appreciate the amazing noble cause that we are attempting here at the Forest Lake Church. We are attempting harmony in Christ, unity in Christ in the midst of true diversity. We haven't quartered out a small group of people who all look exactly the same, who all like exactly the same things, who all come from the exact same context. No. We've got generational diversity. We've got stylistic diversity. We've got ethnic diversity. And to an extent, we've even got theological diversity under this roof. We must be crazy because those are powerful dividers. It's so much easier to do church just one way and expect everybody to conform. Peace itself, much less cooperation, is humanly impossible in a situation like this. I mean, haven't we learned anything from the fall in the Garden of Eden? Indeed, it is humanly impossible, and maybe we do learn that from what happened in the Garden. But what about the cross? Haven't we learned anything from the cross? Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That hostility that it's easy for us to feel in our hearts towards one another, the cross puts it to death. When we call upon the name of Jesus and call ourselves Christian after Jesus, by so doing, we commit ourselves to a new standard of living and to a new standard of loving each other a way that follows his 
way. And here's where we'll end today. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says this. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. You see the standard, right? It ought to frighten us. It doesn't say, as I have tolerated you, therefore tolerate one another. The standard we are to achieve in love for each other is measured by how much Jesus loves us. I have loved you enough when I have loved you as much as Jesus loves me. That's the new standard. That's what we commit ourselves to when we call ourselves Christian and we take Jesus' name. Because Jesus has taken away the wall that divides us from each other and given us the new standard. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, in a world that is divided,